to the April 25th uh, QPSC. Um, just as a reminder, uh, by convention, um, uh, directly uh, after roll call, we move into closed session. Uh, closed session, to remind everyone here, is an 1157 protected discussion and is used to discuss confidential matters related to our organization, medical staff, accreditation, etc. If you are not directly related to one of these conversations, we uh, fully invite you to rejoin us when we go back into open session, which is typically right around 3 p.m. Um, so with that, we will move into roll call. Uh, Trustee Banerjee. Here. Trustee Duquette. Here. Trustee Charland is not here. Trustee Hernandez. Here. Trustee Jensen is here. We have a quorum. Thank you. Uh, with that, we will move into closed session. Yeah, just to be clear, so there's two elements in the closed session. The first being the consideration of the medical staff credentialing reports. The second item will be a conference with legal counsel pursuant to 54956.9, as well as uh, discussion of matters pursuant to 54962. Okay. Uh, welcome, everybody, uh, back to the open session of the April 25th, uh, 2019 QPSC. Um, all trustees are in attendance, save uh, Trustee Charland. Um, will that, with that, we will move into item B, the consent agenda. May I entertain a motion to approve this? So moved. Second. And with that, we will open discussion to items B1 and B2. Uh, first, the minutes. Any commentary on the minutes? Looks good. Uh, item B2, Bravo 2, is uh, the policies and procedures from page 13 to 72. There are four system, two related to the core, uh, Highland Core and one John George. Um, any commentary uh, from the trustees on these uh, policies and procedures? Um, my, my just one request is a, uh, not to be a little bit of a nag on this. Uh, uh, continue to strive for consistency for the approval documentation at the end of every PNP. Uh, uh, please note that we previously noted there is actually not a system MEC. There are three individual MECs. Uh, but a, a number of these documents keep saying system MEC. There are still, as of this time, three separate MECs and uh, not a system MEC. This particularly applies to the Terrasoft policy on page 57 uh, because this one relates to John George, which is under the H core, and uh, it says system MEC. Um, I will also make note, and, and council can add on to me, what we, uh, we had a discussion in closed session about a policy uh, related to our medical staff. It was entitled Facility with Medical Staff Added to Hospital License. Uh, that's included in the packet. It is actually in the, in the Chief of Staff documents, but the board uh, did approve that in closed session. We noted that subsequently uh, medical staff related policies and procedures will be added as a consent agenda item rather than being in actually in the medical staff report. Is that acceptable, uh, Councillor? Yes. Okay. Um, Sorry, just refer to me the page where they use the word system. Page 57. Uh, actually, at the, at, uh, hold on one second, I can get into all these policies. It's, it's at the last of every uh, of every policy and procedure. Um, it's thing they have claimed. But no, the first one actually does do it three separate. Uh, the first policy was the ambulatory formulary uh, policy. Uh, the subsequent ones have system MEC just at the bottom. Um, uh, go to page 21. 
That's a very interesting life policy, by the way, for those of us who read it. Uh, then again on page uh, 31. Jim, Jim, you were capturing this uh, changes in the template of the of the, of the policies. Uh, we have discussed it. Just uh, we talk about it, but just to capture those 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 statements. Um, but otherwise, it's, 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 this is just paperwork, and it's, and it's hard uh, not to underlie the hard work that the quality team does to do this, because yeah, we're, we're it's a lot of policies and procedure. What's yeah. the count, Tim, there? 5,000? Yeah, 6,000. 6,000. I, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge a couple of things related to policy. So, um, uh, um, the role of the CPC co-chairs has been transitioned to Dr. Tornabene and uh, Janet McKenna's uh, representing the appropriate sort of um, uh, co-governance council between physicians and nursing leadership. Uh, so I want to acknowledge them. Um, uh, secondly, just a statement that um, the STAR team is working with uh, the clinical education team uh, to implement uh, upgrade in policy tech. So our hope is that Many of these manual things which are being identified are going to be corrected through the implementation of uh, the upgrade and policy tech. Um, so I wanted to make those acknowledgments. Thank you, Dr. Singh. I mean, that's my question. Is just to take it to the policy tech or even the data having the same one? Yes, sir. And, and uh, yeah, as we build out that, could, could be a standard format. Um, uh, yes, Trustee Banerjee. Page 45. Just one some clarification on when there's a policy and when there's a plan. So the uh, yes. uh, reduction plan is more site-specific and it, it, it has to do with, and I was looking at it, it, helped, it also covers Fairmont and then when Fairmont kind of merges with San Diego. Uh, so how, how does all of this play out then? Like, do they redo the plan? So, so this, this discussion is around the medication error reduction plan, which begins on page 45 of the document. So you're absolutely right. So, the, so first, the distinguishing between uh, the, uh, the medication error reduction plan and policy. Um, so the MERP is a regulatory requirement. So, and I know you've seen this in the past, which is the reason it needs to come to the board. Uh, but you are also identifying a key question, which is, when the licenses, uh, when we get to the point where you know the two licenses might merge, we will have to address these things. Um, the good thing is that uh, the TJC and Title 22 have a list of required documents, uh, so we will we have begun actually all, as well as part of the policy tech implementation. We are identifying those documents that will need to undergo review as we move forward with merger. So very appropriate questions. The good news is that it can be written to allow some variation, but we hope that we would like to minimize that to provide clarity to providers and staff uh, who practice at all sites. Otherwise, they will have to be in this challenging situation to remember what rules apply to where, and that creates a, you know governing issue. So our hope is exactly that we will veer away from that and try to create as much alignment as possible, but an excellent question. Dr. J. Uh, we have a system and uh, uh, patient safety pharmacist uh, 
that's correct, the family. And she, she works at the system level and she's going to do the policies and procedures. Trustees, any further questions with regard to item B, the consent agenda? Uh, with that, all in favor of approving? Aye. Opposed? Abstentions? Item B carries. With that, we will go to item C, uh, the chair's report. This begins on page 7373. And uh, th this is, again, uh, continuing in our journal, journal, journal article pathway. Uh, this is uh, uh, an article entitled, Perchance to Think. Um, I, I chose this article, uh, one, because I'm, I'm a practicing, practicing physician in this organization, and sometimes I just wish I had more time to think as well. And, and as we kind of move, and we, oh, we have these nice dashboards with have a lot of quantitative metrics, I think this article for me stuck out for the, the qualitative of the, of, the, of the quality metrics, which we sometimes are not able to measure. So um, uh, I wanted to just open this up for a brief dialogue, and then uh, uh, I, I, I will, of course, read a small passage which kind of stuck out to me. So I'll open up this for commentary by anyone here uh, sitting at the table, uh, chiefs of staff, uh, executives, trustees. She's also a good writer. <laughs> she really writes uh, well besides making the point. Yeah, I, I mean, this to me is, um, it's frightening how much physicians have to process in a day and how much of a responsibility it is as they deal with the life that they see. And um, it makes me think about our electronic health record and how much that may change even further the amount of time that physicians can spend seeing the patient versus entering data. And the challenge of balancing it is very much in my mind. Yeah. yeah. And as the you know, comorbidities increase and we see patients with much more accurate mm -hmm. how is like the team-based approaches and things, how, you know, to make to be working in that mode, I know that we have a lab and all of those things to have, but it's and then not only throwing on top of this, the, not only throwing on top of the clinical complexity of our patients, which is a very nice segue to a, a component later in today's meeting, language. Uh, imagine you have a, a patient with a complex disease process and you don't even speak the same language to communicate with them on earth. So I think that would be a nice seg into a, a, a great presentation which we'll have later today. Um, if no other further comments, I'll, uh, Dr. J, of course, will have a comment. I, I, I just, uh, you know, I practiced in New York City in the same system as this doctor. I, I think I know her country called it Bellevue. We used to go a lot to Bellevue. It's part of the same system. And uh, I mean, certainly she's raising an important issue. But us as physicians and physician leaders, uh, we can take this as much as a challenge as it is an opportunity. I mean, our patients' population are becoming more complex, more demanding, more medications. Our healthcare system has become much more complex. And the electronic health records, again, added more to our complexity when I used to see patients with a stethoscope and a piece of paper and a pen and pencil and get away with it. These, these days are gone. 
so there is a great deal of uh, what are we going to do differently. And, uh, and uh, the patient uh, sort of centered approach, believing the patient in the, in the clinic visits and in the care, looking at it more as a continuum rather than an episode, and looking at the care uh, less as an episode of 20 minutes and more of a continuum and, and more of interaction with, with, a, with a group practice and the physician and the patient in their family. So uh, the IT tools that we have right now allow us to have uh, a pre-visit preparation. In other words, I can very easily uh, prepare for my clinic like I did today, yesterday, for 15, 20 minutes reading. What is the question being asked here? Who is the patient? What are the priorities of the patients? What, is, what are the priorities of the referring physicians? And how I'm going to structure my, 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 my interaction with the patients in this 20 minutes that I have. Mm. And then how I'm going to document and make it relevant. And then what's going to happen after the visit? You know, whether it is a test that we need to communicate with the patients, whether it is an analysis. So it is really a call for change. And uh, certainly there is a lot of pain in this article which we have all been sharing. But we have to face our uh, social, financial, healthcare reality with, with the change. So that's, that's really my point. There is a lot of literature, I mean, Kaiser has, has published literature about how to, to face this, how to become more effective, how to work as team, how to engage the team and, and have more effective bilateral or bidirectional communication with the patients, family, and among each other. So um, just for those of you who have not had the chance to read this article, this is an article by a physician who practices in uh, NYU's Bellevue Hospital, which is, uh, I believe, our nation's oldest uh, uh, public hospital. And uh, this physician meets a patient with a possibility of a condition called adrenal insufficiency, and they, remark, they, they, they don't remember all the elements of it. And I'll read the last part of this. Um, and they're trying to figure their way out because this patient has multiple medical problems. Of course, sorting out this one issue for this one patient took a full, a full hour outside his visit. I couldn't have pulled it off in the moment, and I can't carve out an extra hour during that non-existent later for every patient with a complex problem. But that's what so many of our patients' conditions require. Time to think, reconsider, revisit, reanalyze. From the billing and coding perspective, that process is supremely inefficient. There's no CPT code for contemplation. But extra time dedicated to thinking with either longer patient visits or protected time for panel management could actually be remarkably efficient. We would save money by reducing unnecessary tests and cop-out referrals. We'd make fewer diagnostic errors and avert harms from over-testing. And allowing doctors to practice medicine at the upper end of our professional standard would make a substantial dent in the demoralization of physicians today. But I'm not optimistic. Time to think seems quaint in our metrics-driven, pay-for-performance, throughput-obsessed healthcare system. Regrettably, cerebral insufficiency will probably remain the working diagnosis for years to come. No amount of ACTH stimulation can cure that. <laughs> so with that, I will... I'm sorry, can I just make one comment? Because actually, I'll have the pleasure in May of attending our the American College of Physicians Medical Practice and Clinical Quality uh, Committee and um, to work on exactly this issue, CMS actually put in um, a request for proposals 
um, from professional societies and their uh, physician fee schedule because CMS is debating exactly this issue on how to value um, evaluation and management and visit. Um, the system, as you know, is a net zero system which in which if they increase the value of a code for a diagnostic procedure, they have to take that reimbursement away from another code. So there's an ongoing multi-professional um, debate, negotiation, about how to propose another way to value exactly the work that Trustee Bouquet and uh, Dr. Jamaluddin articulated, especially as we move towards a pay-for-value system and not away from a fee-for-service system. And we, you know, are struggling to do the right thing, but a lot of what we are struggling with also um, is structurally wrong and has to be fixed by our payers. And I am, I think this is a very timely chosen article because professional societies are coming together right now um, to provide expert guidance to CMS around this proposal. So I'll be happy to share with you at least what the ACP stance is when I come back in June. Thank you, Dr. With that, we will close out item C, and we will move into item D, uh, the medical staff report from the Chiefs of Staff. Each of you has, has roughly 13 to 15 minutes, so uh, as I say, dealer's choice. Whoever wants to open up, go for it. I, I guess... Dr. Marshall. I, I want to be 15 or 15 minutes. Got it. So I'll defer it to you. Yeah. All right. Uh, uh, essentially, uh, last uh, meeting I was... Uh, talking about uh, our acute neurology needs. Uh, and you saw in your packet that two, two neurologists were approved uh, uh, for our medical staff uh, to uh, provide privileges for our current neurologist uh, who is going to be away sometime in May as well. Uh, so they will be providing coverage. Uh, where that uh, resides after May, uh, maybe on an individual basis when the person is away, that's uh, being uh, uh, looked out. But uh, uh, considerable improvement in that. Uh, likewise, our cardiology specialty coverage, we, as I stated, we were notified that our current Alameda Hospital uh, cardiologist uh, is retiring uh, in uh, beginning of July, and it so happens that uh, uh, the cardiology uh, department interviewed, uh, uh, and uh, I, if I recall, actually uh, has accepted a contract uh, to be uh, based at Alameda Hospital, so we'll have this uh, Alameda Hospital coverage, and I'd like to thank Dr. Jamaluddin and, uh, and uh, the cardiologist uh, to be able to recruit that, uh, that uh, uh, individual. Uh, and uh, with the hospitalist, uh, with the acceptance uh, or the approval of, of new uh, hospitalist coverage uh, for our medical staff, uh, it will uh, obviously uh, be helpful in terms of uh, of the increased census that we had uh, secondary to transfers of patients. Uh, and uh, a template has been developed uh, uh, for transfer center from Highland 
to uh, Alameda and the transfer protocol, which is uh, uh, being worked on, and, uh, and there's been substantial improvement in all, all these aspects. Um, and uh, that's essentially my report, obviously, the, the Sapphire instruction, uh, uh, which is going to be rolled out. Thank you for your report, Dr. Marzuk. Trustees, questions for the Chief of Staff for Alameda Hospital? Thank you. Trustee Jensen. Um, Dr. Marzuk, just yes. to continue on that ED transition is continuing to be successful. Uh, yes, uh, it has been uh, successful. And the CT been? Oh, okay. I, I, well, the CT is, uh, the, I think it was operational this week. It's okay. the new CT. Yeah. Uh, wonderful. Which is wonderful. Beyond wonderful, quite <laughs> frankly. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's great. Your equipment here. Dr. Marzu, you made, you made comments of the forward progress on the transfer center and the transfer protocols. Yeah. Is is this uh, is, is your full medical staff generally aware that that that, the, that this there is forward progress on this on this issue? Uh, yes, and as a matter of fact, we discussed it at MEC, uh, and, uh, and I think as I stated, uh, uh, it's uh, with uh, with the actual development of the protocol for one to transfer patients and when the census uh, the maximum number of patients that that our hospital is going to accept uh, it's being worked out and much better than it was. Wonderful. And my second question is, what, what is your personal impression on, on, on the, the general staff's ability uh, or forecasting ability to uptake Sapphire? And I don't mean the physicians, I mean nursing and, and the like. I think it's, it's good. Okay. Uh, uh, because we have a lot of uh, younger staff. It's not uh, uh, that uh, uh, that uh, with uh, uh, and a lot of the staff that's uh, that's at least the medical staff as well are at other facilities who have already experienced the uh, effort. Okay. Um, as always, I'll end with the same question. I'm going to ask you to rank list your top current concerns. And before I do that, I'm going to remind you of what you said last month. Uh, in order last month, you said your, your primary concern, your number one concern was neurology, number two, GI, number three, cardiology, number four, transfer center. Can you rank list your current concerns? Uh, I, I'd say that there's except uh, maybe taking gastroenterology out. Uh, the same, but to a milder degree, and I think the the, the only thing about neurology is uh, is uh, making sure that we may have uh, an ability for our neurologist not just to have some time away uh, for meetings or personal stuff, but maybe perhaps a regular basis where. She could cover uh, uh, neurology as a service, uh, as well as they could have. She could have coverage every second or third or fourth weekend, whatever. So 
the discussions between Dr. Tornabaini and Dr. Jamaluddin in, in your service, right? Wonderful. So just to, to clarify, you, you're going to rank list uh, your... Yeah, I would say they're the same, except... Except for taking GI. Yeah. So that means number one, neurology, number two, cardiology, number three, transfer center. Those are your top three. Well, let's put transfer center as probably uh, number two. Okay, so number one, neurology, yeah. number two, transfer center, number three, cardiology. Yeah. Okay. I say this because I take these minutes myself, and I have a very fancy graph. Okay, to bring back to you guys later. With that, thank you. Um, uh, next, um, Dr. Riccanti. Um, uh, we will hear the Stanley End Hospital uh, medical staff report. Thank you, Dr. Riccanti. So uh, we have the, the credentialing and the quality outcomes have been um, reported, uh, included uh, in the closed session. Closed session. So. Um, we still have concerns regarding the sapphire to you know um, to make sure that we have enough staffing around the uh, rollout uh, in terms of uh, the nursing uh, IT health uh, the, that uh, concern still says, uh, stays uh, um, primary and everybody's working on it and I hope it does uh, run smoothly but uh, it's and uh, the other issue is we are uh, working with uh, AHS Core uh, for the medical staff and uh, making uh, progress, um, you know, ongoing meetings, uh, still trying to figure out the day-to-day -day, um, working plan for the uh, leadership committee that will be representing Sandy Landrow so that we can continue to um, focus on the um, details. Uh, of day-to-day workings at San Diego Hospital. Um, we do still have a primary concern uh, in addition to the SAFAR ongoing is the emergency department where um, we do have bed closures. Um, four of the beds, uh, 10, 11, 12, 13 in the ER, are closed out from 4 a.m. to 11 a.m. Um, so that is definitely affecting the throughput, like an increase in the wait times in the emergency room um, because of the not being able to staff those four beds. And also because of the backlog where inpatient beds are uh, decreased in the interim, of course, that will change soon. Uh, that would be ice, you know, flu season, a lot of isolation beds, so a lot of backup in the uh, ER, the admitted patients in the ER. Um, both together is uh, causing uh, a significant increase in the uh, ER uh, throughput time. Uh, so, So the nurses' morale is also significantly low, um, as I hear from our uh, emergency department chair. So. And um, moving on to the surgical department, uh, we do, we, there is some shortage of coverage in June, July, uh, but we're hoping that uh, they're uh, able to cover those days in the coming months. There are some people that are being credentialed, and I think uh, hopefully that can be resolved. Um, but uh, cutting down the OR times a little bit is affecting some of the surgeries being having to be postponed, and 
um, extra little bit stay because of that, but um, I think uh, hopefully we'll have a resolution for that. So. Do you have people leaving without being seen? From the ER, yes. Mm -hmm. So, Ms. Hall, uh, uh, so the group of the closure of the team um, beds, given that time, some of that, but what are some mitigating like, approaches that um, that are being done? So I will have to, so this is the first I've heard that we've got beds closed down in the ED in San Diego, so I'll have to look into that. Um, what, I, what I will say is, is that, uh, you know, in recent past, and I think we have communicated that before, but in recent past, we restructured and we rebid the schedules in the ED that were aligned and more consistent with the volume trends that we're experiencing in the ED. And so there were periods of time uh, in the, you know, specifically at San Leandro from uh, around 1 a.m. to about 10 a.m. where there was very little movement in the ED, so therefore staffing was scaled down appropriately to make sure that we were not just having people sitting around. And so, and then we would ramp up and scale up based on increasing volume throughout the day of the facility. So. I'm not aware of any closures in beds, but uh, we'll certainly look into that and see what's 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 the driver for that. Um, I will tell you that that's well, that's, that's not that's not acceptable, and we need to address that. Um, this is the third month in running. I think last month, Dr. Virginia said it in January. So the throughput issue and things has been coming up in QPSC. Well, throughput, yeah, throughput has been coming up. time. So it's it's been brought up at least three months in a row. Sorry to interrupt, but uh, that's uh, for the past few months, it has been, the beds have been closed uh, ever since the beginning of few seasons, sort of, is what I. So if, if the throughput wasn't in affecting in the first when the closure happened because the you know the caseload or your patient volume was low, that's one thing. But I think last time, two months we've been hearing that. So, so we'll, we'll certainly look into that. I I to be very clear. I mean, I you know again I want to make sure there's no confusion here. We did close beds on the third floor. We're all aware of that. Like I said, I'm not aware of that, so we'll have to follow up and see what's happening in the ED or why that has, uh, you know, if it's happened, why that happened. Um, but we will correct and we'll make sure we follow up there because that, that shouldn't be the case. I mean, we're managing the volume there. Throughput, um, again, that is something that irrespective of, I mean, opening those additional beds. The throughput challenges that uh, Dr. Ingenium has brought up in the past and that we're continuing to evaluate out there is a result of all of our beds being full on the second floor. Some of the beds that have been impacted by the construction on top of those that have been closed down on the third floor. So as we're ramping down the construction, we're pretty much opening up all the business in the second floor. Uh, again, length of stay, cure the patients, things of that nature. I mean, throughput is an issue that we're dealing with across all of our sites. Uh, but we will look into that and make sure we follow up. Dr. Jack. Uh, just as it relates to left without being seen, uh, I know that uh, Dr. Abzali, who's uh, director of the ED with uh, Ms. Royal Fordell, had uh, implemented corrective action plan. I don't recall the exact number, but we have started to see improvement uh, of left without being seen. And it has to do with the workflow. It's not related to the time mentioned about closure uh, of that, so it's, it's, uh, it's not it's not like related. It is uh, mainly in the fast track area and the work in the fast track 
in acute part. So uh, to my knowledge that this has been improved, but we may be doing metrics about Well, thank you for sharing Dr. Conte, I apologize. I just want to clarify about what I thought I heard and discovered. There are four beds closed in the ED from 4 a.m. to 11 a.m. Is that what you reported? Correct. Got it. Okay. Because uh, I heard 13. And so it's four beds, 12, 13, 14, 15. Okay. And 10, 11, 12, 15, the, the bed numbers. Got it. Okay. We like specificity. All right. Uh, please keep going. Um, I think that's it. Well, Trustees, any further comments on this dialogue from Dr. Wakanti from San Leandro Hospital? Dr. Wakanti, so uh, uh, welcome to your first time here. I always ask the same question. Um, uh, I'll ask you to rank list your top current concerns. I'll remind you what uh, your colleague, Dr. Ingenio, said last time. His rank order last month was number one, ER throughput, which we're talking number two, the Sapphire Epic launch, and number three, the med staff merger. Those, that was his rank order. Uh, can you uh, give your spin on your rank order? Yeah, thanks to his heads up, I came prepared to ask. Wonderful, wonderful. We, like, we don't like people to be surprised. <laughs> uh, number one and number two still say this, uh, stay the same. The bed closures uh, is a concern. Um, uh, and um, the inpatients being backed up in the ER. And the number two is epic uh, uh, staffing around the time of. Um, the rollout is of uh, concern. And uh, regarding number three, we are uh, making progress and uh, uh, you know, working out the day-to-day -day details of that. So it's number one and number two, which is uh, primary. Can, can you drill down on, so thank you for that, on number two, um, Dr. Jimmy made some comments uh, because he said uh, some peculiarities about San Leonardo Hospital is still largely, there's a lot of paper. So the transition from one electronic system to another is, is there's a delta there, but uh, his assertion was that it's an even bigger stretch to go from paper to electronic. Can you give an impression, your personal impression, on, on the staff's ability to probably uptake this? And it's just an impression for the public mic. Right, um, and again, uh, you think it's going to be challenging? It is going to be challenging, uh, mostly because most of our nurses, again, They've been uh, really senior nurses, like they've been working there for a number of years, and it's it's more of uh, it's been built, uh, so it's always hard to change things the longer uh, they used to. So, um, like that, the Marzuk uh, looks like they have a lot of young newer nurses who are probably exposed to um, epic uh, or computers, um, computerized medical method as well. But again, I can't speak to it for most of the nurses, but as a general impression is that um, it's going to be a challenge. And, um, and again, um, the training part, again, because lack of classrooms um, or, or training sessions in the facility is going to be challenging to make sure uh, you know, to make it more convenient for them to, for everybody, not, I mean, this includes even for physicians, it's going to be even harder, um, I mean, equally harder for physicians too, to make sure uh, we have enough people to go and get trained, and um, so looking forward to more IT support as well, and that we can figure out a way to have, like, some sessions in San Diego, that would be greatly beneficial, even if it's uh, for just a few sessions. Um, so right now we don't have sessions in San Diego. Uh, as I understand, uh, in-person, in-classroom in sessions, we don't have them at San Leandro. 
Dr. Ballard, then Trustee Jensen. So, uh, as, as a person who practices there also, I think one of the, the big bottlenecks that is going to happen is that just from a basic hardware standpoint, there's going to be a huge bottleneck there because I can tell you when the paper charts, I'm having the phones in the corner to sit down with a paper chart because the, the three computer physician workroom is overwhelmed with physicians trying to see patients and document. And those three computers are impossible to get to for literally sometimes an hour or two. What's going to happen when our actual data entry is going to be on computers? And it's going to create a huge problem. And the nurses are going to have to be charting. So, so I think that there's, there really needs to be a very serious thought process to work for and to access to hardware if we're going to go for a computer line. Um, and the training to go with it. Got it. Trustee Jensen and Dr. J. Um, I just wanted to suggest a resource. I was actually at the, um, the San Andreas Senior Center today, right next to the hospital. They have some very big rooms, some very big computer rooms, some very big classrooms there. So um, Dr. J, you might want to reach out to them to just, you, know, you can walk right across the parking lot there. It's the same to some, Yeah, to do some some training that uh, you have some lunchtime training or something because it's it's bright and open and uh, we, we will look into it. Just a few points. Uh, about the workroom, it was brought up in the MEC and we took note of it and we are going to do a walk and do an assessment. Uh, certainly we may need uh, like more uh, space and convenience for physicians and uh, in our hardware assessment, uh, I look into it to see what, what uh, we need to do in terms of computer meals or, or also work, uh, work rooms for the physicians. As it relates to the training, um, Yes, it requires space, but also it requires the hardware, and it requires big rooms with many computers. And Creekside is only five minutes away from San Diego. This is where our hub is for everything. So it is, uh, it is really five minutes. It's just, and it's, um, it, it has uh, convenient parking, and we have been using it. But, um, you know, I, I don't know how much cost it would be to fit the room uh, that we're mentioning as a senior center because it needs to be fit, the room needs to be fit. Right. Right. So we look, we look to see. Uh, right, depending on what you were, if you could project, or if you had some intro classes, or I, I don't know, but I just, I wanted to mention that I've been there and they have some very rooms that are this size or larger where you can just do the, the, the big part of the training happens on the right. computer. I mean, we have uh, e-learning, and plus we are going to have also uh, what we call uh, uh, like a, a practice space where we, we can do it anywhere in time. Um, and then the classroom learning has to have the hardware. So we have a question. I mean, it seems like there's not even enough computers. So can I can I get clarification? At San Leandro, how many computer stations are there for physicians? Currently, it's uh, primarily again now it's closed down to one mm -hmm. particular uh, floor, uh, so it makes things harder. We're finding the workspaces nearly uh, impossible. 
hopefully that will change soon. But right now there is one dictation room in which has like uh, which is which is the doctor's room which has three computers in them next to the with access to the charts, nursing, and everything. And there are uh, there is a separate room down the hall which has like four computers, but then there's no access to the charts or the nurses. There are uh, I think there's enough for each there's a telephone for each of the computers so that you could do your dictations. Um, so there's that's four spaces there, but again, that's shared by both uh, the CNAs to enter their wireless, the nursing to do their discharge paperwork, and then there is uh, two, and then uh, two by the telemonitor, tele and then there is uh, on wheels, the, I think there's definitely two, I don't know if there's more than that. Um, uh, but, you know, again, that's... The dedicated ones are the three computers for the physicians. The rest are shared by so on. Eight, I mean, the remaining eight are shared by um, every nurses. Mm -hmm. I will follow up on this. I'm, I'm just sending an email. Uh, just Dr. Connie finished and Dr. Villard. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but because of ongoing discussions, they were opening up one room which is closer to the nursing station which with more visibility than the room down the line i'm not really really sure how many computers are going to be in there even in the temporary period even before it comes on uh, that's uh, being worked on i don't know if you know the time frame on that uh, but, um, but i think one of the one of the components of Sanyana is that there's a fair number of Docs from the community that come in at certain times. So depending on when you do your walkthrough, if it's at a high high flow time, high volume time, and the community physicians are running in, and they're you know, or we're running down from up here, and there's like ebbs and flows where you'll go in and there'll be more like eight people trying to chart at the same time because that's when the docs are on lunch. They're or before the clinics start, or right after the clinics have finished. And so there's like this big influx of people, and literally it's it's really like a swarm of bees in that room. And, and I kind of grab my chart and run and hide to try to get stuff done, because you really can't. And computers will make it possible. I have a follow-up question about this thing. So, um, Let's try and stay at a high level, but are, are physicians going to be allowed to have a laptop of their own to access into Epic from wherever? Yes. Okay. So, I mean, let's not make Sam Leandro um, even further feel like second-class status, which is something that I'm going to call out. We have heard this comment before in this room. But Sam Leander has that sense and sensitivity. And hearing what I'm hearing, it makes me really worry that this incredible investment that we're making in something so vital to the care of the community might be undermined by, by something that we're, you know, just not thinking all the way through. If there's not enough places for people to actually access, what good is the and if there's not the kind of training convenience for everyone, again, simple, just, you know, it's a circuit really can 
undermine me. I just want us to be careful not to jump to an assumption because we did do an assessment and there is going to be a really restructuring of the port. I, I have not looked into the future state how many computers will be done. I don't know if we have classrooms in the angle. Let me, let me get back to you. And we certainly do not want to have any kind of sense of a second class. We want to standardize the care. We want the physicians to be feeling the same kind of support throughout the system and we, as we are integrating and systemizing. We, we uh, you know, as you know, the, the whole uh, uh, like investment is, is, is going to be equitable as, as it relates to the care. So we certainly will not have that. Looking forward to that. Thank you. Thank you. I'll put that on our tracking list. So, Dr. Conti, just to close out one more time, your rank order was number one, ER throughput, number two, Sapphire Epic, as we've been talking about, number three, the med staff merger. Correct. Thank you for your report. You did a great job. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Bard, uh, take us to the house. You know what? We're actually doing a pretty long time. You have till 4 p.m. Oh my word. <laughs> so, as, as stated in the closed session, our, um, our med staff office has been really busting it this past four weeks, and I'm so proud of them. And I'm trying to figure out cookie types and things to get them. <laughs> they, they, <laughs> they have credentialed over 90 people this past month, and it's just a great. In addition to that, they pretty much, with all that other stuff going on, they help push this policy together um, to try to get the, the new consolidation up and running and flowing so that we can actually have people come on board by July. And um, so they're the ones to credit with all this work. From um, an, additional, an additional credentialing committee standpoint, I have to say the credentialing committee has really raised the bar the last two months particularly in that the members of it um, granted are all really busy physicians and they're doing everything they can to be there for the full meeting. They're, as I mentioned, with the um, yellow flag case for the, the licensure of a oncoming cardiologists, they've been doing such due diligence to make sure that the credentialed physicians are safe. Um, Dr. Shaw actually made a list at the end of the last credentialing committee, and we had all of these fine detail points we had questions about. We were being that granular about our approval process, and he actually went and called the different chairs and vetted the process via conversations and within 24 hours had an email to the rest of the committee saying, I checked all these points that we had of concern, even questions, and um, it was really nice loop closure and a really thorough process that I was extremely proud of having never been a provincial person myself. Um, that being said, uh, we came up with a checklist to help vet the process ahead of time that we can give the chairs that when they're starting to consider an applicant to come on board, they may have a checklist of things to sort of think through and talk about with the applicant to, to have a conversation with that person about what to expect and the things that may create yellow or red flags in their application process, which hopefully will streamline some of our early filtering. 
and make it um, make it that much more of a, of a seamless process when it gets to the credential standpoint to our medical staff standpoint. Um, we also, in our recent notes, over the contracting, there were um, no new uh, policies that we needed to go over, I mean, contracts that we needed to go over. We did approve our policies that were um, presented to us. But from a quality standpoint, um, in addition to the true metrics, which Dr. Hussein um, is, uh, is up for discussion, the other thing that was but the point that we were really focused on in the last night meeting was the idea of surge. And we've talked about surge pretty much every month since it became a thing. And I think, you know, there are an enormous number of people doing an enormous amount of work in it. And it reflects the fact that for a really, really long time, we had absolutely zero infrastructure. And I think people are getting frustrated but when I look at it from the lens of being here for over a decade and a half now, I'm like, we've, we've started to build that infrastructure that we haven't had for so long. And I can see that being built. And I'm trying to be, get everyone else to come and see that they haven't been here this long. That we're actually so much better than we were before, even though we're still in surge red more than 50% of the time. And um, so. I'm encouraged. I think that we're looking down where five years from now we look back and go, wow, that was a lot that we did. And then we, let, we made more progress than we realized that we ever would, but it's just going to take time for it to all flesh out. Um, the other things that were, we were a, a significant points of discussion, both in open and closed session last week, were on um, the budget. I think everyone is extremely concerned about the financial status of the institution. People are really concerned about what programs may be compromised and what the future will look like in the new financial um, environment that we're in. Um, and so there are many, many, many discussions, and I know that you are going to talk about that in depth tomorrow, and I just, you know, I'm additional strategies to, to reductive strategies if we can start thinking in other ways around that because you know this this institution works on the shoestring as it is and I'm not sure what happens to shoes when you take the shoestrings away. <laughs> so um, the budget is a huge point of contention still for all the med staff. We also talked uh, somewhat about the med staff merging the, the calendar for having the bylaws before the med staff is now, we're at that point. In another week, we, it will go up for a vote, which is a 10-day process. Once it's voted on, it will be presented in the May MAC meeting and then presented to you all. And it will um, be at that point um, ready for, I guess, once you approve it, it will be ready to push forward with the licensure. So we are on target for our calendar, and it should all um, work hopefully, hopefully seamlessly once it gets to the voting point. The concerns that were raised uh, by the San Diego group with the med staff committee, or the committee that will pretty much take the place of the functional med staff now, um, we're going to call it the leadership committee. It will serve many of the same functions as the current med exec committee and offer them even more voices. They will have four voting members from that committee 
um, we will sit at our MEC and be able to communicate their concerns for day-to-day -day operations and quality and credentialing from their standpoint. But the, um, I think the concerns of losing their voice and their self-direction are really valid. And as I uh, stated at breakfast to Dr. Engineer on Wednesday this week, our intention is to not only embrace their joining us, but to support them in every way. And I think this fear that our chairs would somehow displace their um, current leadership is, is we understand where it's coming from, and yet at the same time we try to emphasize our intention is to not displace anyone, but to empower them and to allow the leaders there to be true leaders and to have a voice here through both the chairs here and through their voting members of the MEC. And so I hope that we can continue to work in a way that that, that intention is felt and that the concerns are, you know, abated because that intention is felt, you know, down in, in the San Leandro area. So that's our goal. That's what we hope for. Last but not least, Dr. Um, presented his proposal for diversity, inclusion, and equity officer. I think it's, I think it's the, the initial proposal frames it around a physician um, representative. And there's, there was discussion at the open NEC that some parallel efforts have been made from an HR standpoint that suggested that maybe it wouldn't be a physician. So there's a lot of, um, there's a, a lot of discussions that need to be done around that topic. I know that the residents here have really um, very strong feelings about having a physician leader that is in some way that has a role of leadership in that area. And you know, my, my takeaway from the meeting and the way I, I ended that conversation, or, or at least put it on, you know, autopilot until the next meeting is that, you know, it may be that we have to think creatively to, to meet all the needs of this institution. And I do think that this kind of role is needed across the board for all departments and not just physicians. And so we possibly may have to have a co-director or a director that's a physician and a sub-director that's or associate director that's a, an HR person. I don't know how it will look, but I think that we can be creative and meet the needs of everyone, or at least almost everyone, and be able to start making diverse, diversity and inclusion and equity a priority that we can, you know, have as one of the elements of our mission here. So stay tuned to see how it actually shakes out in terms of the actual leadership goals, but there are people thinking about it, talking about it, and I hope that all the people that are in silos talking about it can get together and come up with a cohesive plan so that we can move it forward and actually have a real thing by July. It's my hope. So that concludes my report. Thank you, Dr. Millard. Trustees, any questions for Dr. Millard? Why don't we do a comment? Yeah, just thank you so much for the update. Um, as you know, this is something that we've been talking about for almost four years. Um, and I do believe that it can be something that's done creatively. Understanding the budget issues, um, you know, one suggestion that I would just put on paper here or in public view is that um, some hospitals form 
an internal advisory council around health equity. And that council is comprised of the different uh, players who see and interact with patients and understand those key stakeholders that we need to serve. Ultimately, the ideal is that any leader that works here needs to have a more performance evaluation uh, list of things that they're held accountable for, some measure of inclusion, some measure of health equity. Um, and when you, you know, make it part of everyone's responsibility, that tends to make the culture move faster. If it's relegated to one person, you know, that person can launch activities and, you know, encourage certain programs and so forth, but it, it's hard to do it as one person. So I just want to encourage that, yes, we need physician engagement, we need staff engagement, and it may be that we form some sort of informal but you know, powerful internal council around health equity. That's you. a very fascinating concept. I'll, I'll take that to the community next week. I like that. Thank you. Trustee Banerjee. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that and being, you know. Um, so um, definitely um, in terms of the um, sapphire, um, that I guess is really uppermost. It seems to be rising for for all of the staff and just making sure that that transition really goes well and you know the training and the support is is commensurate with what's the current state and what needs what needs to happen. So thank you for that and for raising all these years we had no idea about the hardware situation. So. If we hadn't brought that up, I don't think that um, that would have meant so that that's good to know. And as far as the diversity, I'm so glad that the physicians group is thinking of that. I really think it has to be. I'm sure. I hope our HR is, you know, thinking that through too because it literally, it literally has to permeate the every part of the uh, of our organization culture. So good to hear. We will be looking to hear how, how this is going on. Dr. Jay, anything? I'm sorry, no, it's reading you. Um, Dr. Ballard, again, thank you very much. Um, you know, I'm going to end the same way. I'm going to remind uh, this committee of uh, Dr. Ballard's answer to this question last time. And uh, Dr. Ballard, in my opinion, gave an extraordinarily honest and brave uh, discussion uh, last time about her main concerns. And if you if all recall, she noted one, two, and three on her concern list were all the same thing. And uh, to refresh, that was the issue of trust and communication between the medical staff and the executive staff. So that was uh, Dr. Ballard's uh, one, two, and three last month. Dr. Ballard, what do you have um, for us this month? Um, I think this month is going to be the budget. It's going to be the biggest. Number one. Number one. The second, with um, likely will be Sapphire. Okay. You know, the, the trains upcoming where people are really wanting and needing to, to sort of know what the schedule is going to be and know that there's going to be support. And the third, I think, is the, the still the, the merger and moving forward because we're not completely there. And I'm, I'm the person that you tell the fat lady sings. We're still in it, so um, I'll be fat lady. So. <laughs> I'm waiting to see when this thing gets signed off on because it's, um, it's a big deal. Okay. With, with regards to your, 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 your 
speech to us last, or your discussion with us last last month, has there been any movement on on that, the issues of relations between the medical staff and the executive staff? I think it's going to be a longer term process. I I do. I do think that I've seen that people are trying to move into a new era, both on the executive side and with, um, you know, developing new areas of trust as both the, the major force in the and 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 also the healthcare and, and the AHP major and, and the liberation. So, moving forward from what I understand. So, you know, I think it's it's going to take more than a few weeks. It's going to, this is going to be an ongoing project for us to really change our culture and change the way we relate to each other. Got it. Okay. Thank you, all three of you, um, uh, for, for your discussion today. Uh, without any further comment, we will close out item uh, D, the medical staff reports. We will now move into item E, the SBU quality metric report from ambulatory. Dr. Paul Bavaria, who is our CAO and a practicing physician in the system, who's presented to us many times before, is presenting to us today. Paul, welcome. Remember the concepts here. We try presume that everyone's read the packet. 25% uh, presentation, 75% dialogue that we strive for. Paul, thank you. Thank you so much for having me back. It's great to see all of you. Um, apologies again that uh, until Sapphire goes live, we do have an ambulatory Sapphire-related call at this time, so most of our ambulatory leaders are not here, but we've brought a special few that we're going to be spotlighting. Um, so please, you know, interrupt me along the way so that we can engage in that dialogue. I just wanted to hit a few highlights, all of which are referenced in the written report that I submitted. And trustees, this begins, uh, Dr. Barbaria's uh, report begins on page 101, a very nice narrative which can probably follow and complement her slides. Um, so, you know, there's obviously 80 plus metrics that we are tracking in ambulatory on a daily, weekly, and monthly basis. I did not include all of them in the written report because Trustee Bouquet would not have appreciated a 100-page document to you all. Um, but I'm trying to switch them up, you know, quarter to quarter just so you get a flavor of what we're doing. So one of the biggest ones for access this year, as you all remember, is really thinking about cycle time. So when our patients come to us, um, you know, how long are they waiting? Do they have to take an entire half day off of work just to get through a clinic visit? And it's been really exciting um, to see the amazing work that really our managers, and clinical leaders, including the medical directors and chiefs and all of our frontline staff and supervisors have put into this. The baselines were highly variable. Some clinics, the cycle time was already around 50-something minutes at baseline. Others were upwards of, you know, 120, 140 minutes on average. So, if, you know, two hours is your average. You can imagine some patients are much longer than that. So I'm going to invite Ramana Hussein to come sit next to me. Um, you know, again, there's amazing work happening everywhere, but our K6 clinic, which is managed by Ramana Hussein, who's the practice manager, and Dr. Blake Gregory, who's a primary care physician who oversees adult women's and peds, um, I think is particularly exciting because they've really launched into the PDSA cycles and piloted multiple, multiple different tests of change and sort of lost track of all of them, you know, to really see this is a complicated problem. There's breakdowns at every step of the way, and if we're going to fix it, it's not going to be a single solution that fixes it. So, Ramana, I'm going to let you explain 
precise. And I didn't give you any prep time, so. Exactly. <laughs> 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 um, so what you see here is a postcard that we use. Uh, to hold on one second. Dave, is that my pot? Okay, what you see here is a postcard that we just wanted to use kind of a different format to both celebrate and make more interesting the results of the um, intervention that we tried in our women's clinic. So as Paul has mentioned, we've been um, discussing with our staff and our medical providers just what their ideas are. Um, in terms of what makes their clinics run long. Um, before getting into the intervention, one of the things that we've been emphasizing with the entire team is um, everyone loses when clinics run late. The patient's not happy, the provider's not happy, the staff's not happy, um, and so it really uh, is something that people are motivated to work on. We've expressed a lot of really terrific ideas, um, and we started with ones that were more manageable and implementable um, on a short time horizon, and we have some other ideas that we don't want to term. Of course. Are you talking about um, wait times in both, wait times for to see the physician and wait times for the physician to um, wait for the patient? The whole thing. From the moment the patient shows up at the front desk to the point that they leave. And so there's a lot of waiting for many parties involved along the way. So um, one of the interventions that we um, piloted recently and we've been expanding it to other providers is reflected here in this postcard, which as I started by saying, we wanted to deliver it in a way that was kind of exciting and interesting um, to share the results with our team. Um, we had one of our providers uh, work with um, both interventions and so don't, uh, uh, the scientific method here is that it's not entirely clear which resulted in the majority of that improvement of 10 minutes, but basically for that provider from the baseline to after the intervention improved um, the time per patient by 10 minutes. So what did we do? It's pretty simple. The first is the way that our process is at, uh, at current across our clinics is when a provider finishes with a patient, the medical assistant is alerted and the medical assistant will work on whatever types of follow-up activities there might be based on the provider visit. So it could be um, processing the lab order, it could include scheduling follow-up appointments, um, and maybe getting certain supplies that the patient's going to go home with. Um, one of the things that is pretty time-consuming is finding the appointment, and that's something that our front desk staff is also um, trained up to be able to do. And so the intervention that we piloted that got the patient out the door a lot faster is for the provider to write on a slip of paper what the appointment um, the next appointment needs are, and for the front desk staff to work on that appointment scheduling concurrent to the MA doing the other items. And so that resulted in the patient being able to be discharged and out the door faster. Um, one of the things we were concerned about is whether this would end up being burdensome for the front desk staff, um, which is why we started with just one patient, uh, excuse me, one provider that we're working on. But they've been super positive and engaged in their work, and they don't feel that it's um, too much for them, and so now we're adding like one to two providers per week so that the front desk staff doesn't feel overwhelmed with all of these appointments that they need to do. And um, we shared the results in our broad staff meeting yesterday, and the 
uh, staff that were participating in the pilot were really proud of the results, and I think it created good energy for the rest of the team. The second part of the same uh, pilot, um, but it happens less frequently, so I don't think it had as much of an impact on the time, is um, traditionally, if a patient arrives late for their appointment, the front desk staff will hunt down the medical assistant or the provider to figure out if it's if the provider is willing to work the patient into the schedule. So just imagine the patient arrives, the front desk person says, I'm sorry, you're 25 minutes late, then the front desk person gets up, walks to look for the medical assistant, wherever the medical assistant might be in the clinic, then someone might need to consult with the provider, and then go back to let the patient know what the outcome is, and then begin the process of registration. So something that was 25 minutes behind then ends up being 40 to 50 minutes behind before they can even get started. Mm -hmm. And so instead, the provider is reviewing the schedule and indicating to the medical assistant which patients, based on what the clinical need is, which patients are willing to work into their schedule even if they're late. And in that way, the uh, front desk staff, when the patient shows up, has all the information they need to either reschedule the patient for a later time or with the knowledge that the provider wants to um, uh, see the patient that day. And so in the cases that this would occur, it would create a pretty big improvement all around. Um, but during our test period, there weren't that many patients on that provider schedule that was late, so we haven't really had um, a clean measurement of what that is what the result is. But overall, it's been terrific. And so we have now four providers um, in this pilot still, and we're just working on growing it across the clinic. Questions? Yes. Trustee Jackson. Yeah. Um, well, and, and this is ideas with, with these kinds of from staff from the medical systems or from the, from the front desk? The appointment yeah. scheduling is one that our medical systems have brought up a lot. Um, it happens that one of the best practices from Epic also involves the front desk scheduling, and so for us, that suggestion seems like a really great thing to start so that once Epic launches, people are familiar and comfortable with the new process. That's something that the MAs have been wanting for a long time. Um, and then the identifying which patients need to be seen before huddle, our PEDS clinic has been doing this for a while, um, but adult and women's hadn't been traditionally, and so I don't know where they had come up with it originally, but we sort of just took a good practice from one clinic and brought it to another. That's good. I mean, it seems kind of validation as well as, you know, if it works and yeah. validating some suggestions. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much. I just want to say, like, what I love, and, you know, this is one example, but we have, you know, dozens and dozens of these pilots happening in ambulatory at our specialty operations council just yesterday one of our managers um, shared work being done with a plastic surgery wound clinic which you know is a morning clinic so in theory 8 30 to 12 routinely used to go until 3 p.m and the work they've done they are now almost consistently finishing by 12 or 12 30 every day you know which is huge and you know so many of the ideas have really leveraged you know the great ideas that our staff have that our frontline providers have because these are the folks doing the work, you know, day in and day out and know exactly what all the frustrations and pain points are. Just one other point, this is just a little, a little bit of 
power in terms of the process that we use rather than rolling it out at once. The medical assistant who is a part of this pilot is one of the hardest to please, so she complains a lot. Um, and she is so pleased by this and is now like a huge champion of it. So it's really nice to be able to work with, um, one, where it feels like it's something that they're testing out and not something that they're being forced to do. And then if it works, which in this case it did, there's just a lot more enthusiasm about adopting it across the board. So I think every trustee should at some time during the tenure sit on the QPSC. And I don't think I'm ever going to leave as long as I'm here because we were on the finance committee when we look at the dashboard sometimes and we see these pink and, you know, where it is and you're seeing that, oh, they're off by a minute. And so and, so, and that's that's what we see, but the backstory of what's happening is so important to hear. So thank you very much. Sure. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so this is a True North metric dashboard, of course, which you see, and we are off by a minute in primary care, specialty care, you know, I think started with a much higher baseline. And Actually, Paul, this isn't the True North metric. Oh, sorry. This is our ambulatory SBU dashboard. Yes. Correction. Yes. Um, we still have the cycle time, obviously, on here, and specialty has been in the green and met their targets and are exceeding their targets, I think, a lot because we found so many outlier clinics in that realm that, you know, similar to the plastic surgery example, that we're able to shave off. But as you heard, you know, the work is going, the efforts are strong in the primary care realm as well. Um, I wasn't going to get into great detail about the other metrics, but I'm happy to take questions if there are any specific questions on any of the others. Yeah, I'm, I'm just super concerned about the childhood access to primary care provider, given what we know about what's going on for our county and asthma, just that one chronic condition. What can you tell us about this? Absolutely. Um, so there's a lot more to this than obviously is reflected in these numbers. So we, we put this on the dashboard very purposefully knowing that we likely weren't going to hit it this year. So one of our QIP metrics is broken down into all these elements, but it's basically around childhood access. Do children of these various age ranges come in for the well-child preventive care visits? It's not you know acute care, but are we just providing the regular check-ins that we know we need to? Um, why this metric is so hard for our system is that it includes all of our assigned patients who may or may not have ever seen us. And so, you know, it's not reflected on here, but when you go into the QIP dashboard and look at the performance, if a patient's already coming to our wellness center, our performance on this metric is between 95 and 99% for all four of our wellness centers. So we are doing a great job for the kids who show up and then, you know, they show up as babies or kids and then we see them every year. Um, where the rate is, you know, close to 10% or 5% is really all of the children who've never come into our system before. And that is where, you know, we need so much more work to happen. And as we move towards a population health model, that's where the work is, frankly, not just for the children, but for all of the adult populations as well. What does it mean, though, if they've never come to the clinic? Are we assuming they've gone elsewhere? So prior to capitation, some of them were going elsewhere. So they were going to, you know, what clinic is CHC and post-capitation, they are supposed to come to us. Some of them just don't, you know, go to the doctor. They go to the emergency room or they get acute care. They go to urgent care. Um, so we don't, you know, we don't know. Are these kids getting care somewhere? Are they getting care nowhere? Are they floating in and out of the EDs? 
Um, and this is where, you know, as we move and more value-based programs come on, there's a desire, certainly from the state and from Medi-Cal, to push all metrics to be like this. You don't get credit just for the patients you're seeing. You know, you have to provide this great, amazing care for all your patients, whether they come into you or not. So this year, knowing we weren't going to hit the target, we've been doing a lot of tests and pilots to figure out what is the best way to engage these patients. So we have rosters of these patients who aren't coming in. We've done massive phone campaigns, letter campaigns. The yield on them has often been like 1%, 2%. Sometimes the phone numbers themselves that we get from the health plans are incorrect. Um, and this is not unique to us. Every county in the state is struggling with this. Um, but I think in Epic, we will also be able to leverage technology more to do mass outreach, text messaging. Um, in Epic, when we get the flat file from the managed Medi-Cal plans, that data feeds directly into Epic, and so it's already there. Whereas in our current system, if we've never seen them, like, you know, we have a separate data file, but many of these patients, they don't even exist in Storium. They don't have a medical record number. They're not in our system. Um, so it's a lot more challenging. And one as we're thinking about like which metrics makes it to the true name, the great one, so is there a lot, like, uh, are we going to continue some of those? How is that process working out when you have that many which ones go out? Um, so I believe what's on the true north this year is how many of the QIP and prime targets we're hitting. So it's a ratio, and it's it's because we struggled. You know, we said these, we have these, you know, 80-some metrics, and how do we pick two to put on there? So we figured giving you the ratio would give you a sense of all of the work that's being done. For the ambulatory-specific dashboard, we actually engaged all of our leaders, so supervisors, managers, and medical directors. Um, it took us three rounds of voting from the group to sort of get to land on this spot of, you know, what are the most, everything is important, but, you know, what are the ones that we want to be tracking? We wanted to spotlight some pediatrics measures, some adult med measures, so um, these represent sort of the group consensus on that. So just, just to remind the committee, and of course everyone knows this, this committee over uh, with regard to the True North metrics uh, across all the quality spectrum, we, are, we have chosen 13 for this year. Five of these are related to the ambulatory SBU, and I'll just refresh what they are. There are two of them are at the top there, the ambulatory uh, lead time for primary and specialty, QIP, prime, and CG caps. Those are the five that we, we've selected. So um, obviously we'll, we won't be able to advance all of these through the true, true North metrics. Dr. Barbary, I hope you'll be present during our ongoing discussions led by Dr. Hussein as we start to make our forecast. I'll remind the, the committee and the audience that, that as we approach fiscal uh, starting 1 July, we need to really be prepared to make vote in June yeah. about our forecasted mm -hmm. quality metrics. So uh, reframing that question, Paul, of, uh, uh, and again, it's, a, it's an ongoing dialogue. Are, are you favoring continuing what we did or, or, or the, the five that you have, adding, subtracting, changing out? You know, I think certainly the next two slides, which I'll show you, you're not supposed to be able to read this. I just want, if you guys haven't seen this, this is what a prime QIP dashboard looks like. So it has every metric, who's responsible at the executive level, how much money is tied to that metric, 
what the target is for that metric, as well as national or statewide benchmarks, you know, what's the 25th and 75th percentile, so we can compare ourselves to our peers, and then the last few months of data and where we are, and green is it we're at target already, red is we're out of target. And it doesn't fit on one page, and it doesn't fit on eight and 11 paper. It goes to two pages, and then some of those extra big sheets, um, just to give you a sense of, like, the amount of work that goes behind all of those priming QIP metrics. So I would certainly advocate for keeping that for next year because this work is ongoing um, and it's good for people to get credit for it and it's such a big part of what is driving all of our efforts at least for the next year. And it's a twofold metric because it relates to finance as well. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and the other thing, you know, you'll see we still have a fair amount of red this year. I am so proud of how much work everyone across the organization, um, but especially in ambulatory, is putting into this. Um, I think there is some fatigue that's happening similar to what Dr. Bullard was alluding to between just the sheer amount of work required to prepare for Sapphire, which are often the same people, as well as all the work going into this, plus, you know, obviously just the day-to-day -day patient care needs that all of us are engaged in. Of course, mm -hmm. Trustee Hernandez. So another observation, going back to Dr. Bernard, your interest in seeing equity being, you know, part of um, the discussion and part of the leadership team. Um, this data always makes me ask the question, do we know which children are not being seen? And are they in concentrated areas and hotspots by zip code or by ethnicity or something else? And I know that, you know, we, have, we can crunch numbers all day long. But ultimately, if you want to reduce the health disparities that we do see, um, and, and I know that we're pretty good, but there's some out there, we have to be willing to go deeper into this data at some point and ask the question, you know, of the kids that are not getting connected, you know, what percent are Latino, what percent are African American, or some other, you know, designated uh, group, and ask ourselves really tough questions. Who are the right partners in the community that are going to help us meet this need to reach them, to encourage them to get the care that they need? If we don't crunch the data that way, we cannot know it. And, and I, I mean, I say this in my sleep and I say it everywhere I go. We can't be good at population health unless we know more about the conditions in which these kids live. That's I totally agree. And I will say, behind this dashboard, every single one of these metrics, we can slice by race, ethnicity, and language. And we have. So we, we have that data. I think the big gap, like you alluded to, is for patients who've touched our system, you know, we have that data, and we can splice it, and we can do it. Um, we don't, you know, if someone's never come into contact with that system, that information is not always readily accessible, and that is a gap, right? You know, what is the language, you know, we don't necessarily get it from the payers, what language that enrolled member speaks, and, you know, I'm sure there are disparities in terms of engagement that we don't even realize because we don't have the data. We, we, uh, this is a very important, sorry, I'm, I'm intrigued. Of course. <laughs> so, uh, this is an extremely important, uh, you know, question. Uh, as it relates to population health uh, management and disparities, especially in, uh, in the preventive sense, especially for, for children. Uh, I know that I think many has been starting to look at this question, uh, you know, when we build EPIC, we're going to have a lot of this data and hopefully we will see what we can do with it. Some uh, systems have this data and they're trying to figure out you know, what, what, what can we do with this data and how can we, uh, how can we intervene. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, all our partners, you know, the, the Alameda 
county are very, very interested in, from the county to the alliance, uh, as much as Kaiser is very interested in, in understanding health care disparity. Yeah. Yeah. And we do agree that the community engagement is the bedrock of that, of that work, because it's not going to be done by us alone. I just wanted to add that actually in prime, so Dr. Minnie Swift, um, one of our leaders in population health, has actually created a template, a dashboard, um, with the help of the BI and analytics team, looking at every single one of the QIP prime measures um, um, and has stratified by ethnicity, race, and language. And actually, um, uh, we will work together. So currently, Dr. Uh, Bavaria and I are co-chairing the prime QIP steering. So we will begin to put on the agenda uh, what is the strategy around this data, around the dissemination, and, and the review of this data. But um, that will probably evolve over the next two or three months. So hopefully, maybe one of the things we can think about in terms of our true net metric planning is how to incorporate this um, these data into a, into a review. So wanted to reassure you that the dashboard that uh, Pavel was talking about is actually being utilized by leaders, including Dr. Mini-Swift now. It's the strategy formation around how do we appropriately draw attention to this data and it not be overtaken by metric fatigue. Mm -hmm. And I want to make sure that when we introduce this data, mm -hmm. it is done with the meaning and purpose that it deserves. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Trustees, mm -hmm. any other further comments? Oh, I'll keep going. Okay. Any other questions on primary QIP? Okay. Um, so just a few, again, we can, you know, there can't be 76 slides in here, but did want to just give you a snapshot of some of the latest metrics that we continue to follow around hypertension. Um, you know, so all of our clinics, when I first started, the goal of 70% represents the 90th percentile for HEDIS. And when I started, many of our metrics were far below the 25th percentile or median. And I'm just I'm so proud of all of our teams and the sort of, you know, demonstrable, excellent care that we are providing across all of our sites. Um, Similarly for diabetes, you'll see we have some seasonal variation, which we've started to notice as we dig into our diabetes data, that over the summer time and, you know, with intensive efforts, we usually get down to goal, and then the holidays always hit every year. Um, and right after November, December, January, many of our diabetic patients come in with more uncontrolled A1Cs, um, and then, you know, we go through the process. I'm confident we'll be able to get them back down, but when we've looked at our last videos of data, that is a recurrent trend trend. Um, in terms of access, you know, I know we didn't put the TNAA uh, specifically on the True North Metric dashboard this year, but just did want to share some of the amazing work that's happening in specialty care. Um, so as you all know, we you know, have been undertaking template standardization and redesign. We've also really been working to expand our e-consult work, which you've heard about. Obviously, our launch of Rubicon, we ended up deciding to just wait and build everything out in Sapphire, which we um, are currently in process. But many of our specialties who weren't doing e-consults in NextGen or Rubicon have actually come forward and have wanted to partner and start doing them sooner. And so we've had a workflow, which I'm going to spotlight. And Jackie, I'm going to have you come sit next to me so you can talk to everyone about it. Um, to really see, you know, leveraging RefTrack, even though we know it's an outdated, antiquated system, 
how can we sort of get some of these specialties who haven't been doing e-consults a taste of e-consult and then help prepare you know for our sapphire launch where everyone will be doing e-consult also just wanted to call out you know we certainly have some continued challenges to access in some of our specialties which you see you know on the top few blocks most of which are driven by either some provider fmla issues that occurred earlier or recruitment challenges and ongoing you know recruitment and contracting but many 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 of our specialties now have you know great access within 30 to 45 days which is also i think uh, a vast improvement from where we were even a year or two ago yeah. um, so Jackie also I didn't prepare, but Jackie Broussard is our wonderful practice manager who oversees our orthopedic and podiatry clinics and is also serving as our interim practice manager for our dental and oral surgery clinics. Um, so Jackie, I'm going to let you actually talk through what you guys did. Okay. So I'm Jacqueline Broussard. So what, thank you. So what we did to help with our backlog is, well, let me go back a little bit further. As you see in the slide here, it has in January we had 1,800 patients that was on our orthopedic backlog list. And both those are from NextGen and from Sorian. However, um, we decided to work with Catherine and the team here and put together a little pilot on a day where um, our providers were, um, maybe had one or two providers in clinic and we got together and did a little group for the MAs in our physician assistants to work together in a team approach and what we decided to do was call our patients uh, oh, and the before unit, let me back up, our before unit was also involved in this because they were overseeing the whole referral process. So what we did was um, got all of our backlog together, called all of our patients and um, it was like a handoff. If the, if the patients asked her and if they were still interested in an appointment, um, we scheduled them right there on the spot. If they were not and had already been seen their previous, um, the previous visit or another clinic or didn't want to be seen, didn't have the pain, didn't know the reason why they were being called, um, then we would be consulted. So we worked with IT and um, created a drop down in the RefTrack um, program software and um, enter that data into that field. I just like to spotlight. So, you know, in January when this process started, and they did a huge, like, day-long effort on this, um, but then the PAs and the referral unit and the MAs have continued this work sort of in smaller chunks of time since then. And so, with this process alone, the backlog of patients awaiting scheduling went from 1,800 to 558. It continues to drop week by week. Um, and a lot of that is just cleaning it up, and we know that we have a lot of unnecessary referrals from certain areas. Patients are referred from the ED and elsewhere, and um, there's a new initiative going on with the ED to help improve the appropriateness of those referrals. But I think it's just such a testament, you know, similar to our cycle time work, that this is not resource intensive. You know, we didn't get, you know, at least in this case, new technology. We didn't get five new providers. Um, but we've been able to make so much improvement just by being, you know, smarter about how we work as opposed to just trying to work harder. Um, and I think there's a lot more opportunity like this across, frankly, all of our clinics to really think about, you know, what is the best way to serve the patients? Does everyone need an in-person clinic visit? How do we better, you know, reserve our access for the patients who are truly sick and, and truly need to see the valuable specialists that we have? Dr. Bard? 
Do you have the metrics on how many of those 1,800 patients had sought care elsewhere? Do you have we're waiting too long? We do have that breakdown. We can get back a lot. Of, so many of them were duplicates. Many of them hadn't gotten care, but you know, had been referred. Example from the ED for like, I fell and twisted my knee. That lasted a week. It's it's better, and I just don't need to be seen. And then some, you know, who had persistent issues definitely had some of them had been seen elsewhere. Any other further comments on Dr. Barbaria's report? Very nice report. Um, Dr. Barbaria, you know my standard, you know I am about standard work. So in your January presentation, I asked you for your top to rank order, your top three concerns. Do you remember what you said? I'm sure I said epic, epic, epic. That's exactly what, that's exactly what you said. Um, can you uh, update your, your rank order of concerns? Um. I'm glad I get to go after Dr. Bullard because I often agree with her. So I would, you know, I think budget would definitely be number two, or number one, and Epic would probably be number two. And I think we, we are all aware of just the changing funding streams in healthcare um, in the nation and for our state, and in particular for public hospitals. Um, and I think it's hard. You know, I don't think there's any future in which we can continue to do what we are doing today as we are and, and survive, you know, either from a just surviving standpoint or, or from a maintaining the appropriate clinical care standpoint. And so I think there are um, tough choices ahead of us and I'm going to be really looking for leadership from this group to figure out, you know, how do we move forward where we can figure out, you know, we can't do everything, what, what are the main um, things that we can continue to support and excel and strive in and that, you know, I recognize that they're not easy decisions to be made, um, but that is really going to be what ensures our success with EPIC or not. Thank you for your report, Dr. Lorraine. With that, we will close our item E and we'll move into item F, translation services. Sylvia has been waiting very patiently, so thank you. So this presentation, uh, I, I, there are three listed, I believe it'll be two. Uh, Sylvia Lozano, our VP of System Transformation. Hi, Sylvia. Hi. Uh, Helen Pagillo-Pelligan. So uh, we, we like to try to keep to a principle. You should presume that the board has read your, your very nice uh, report. We try to strive for 25% presentation, 75% dialogue. Sometimes we do it, sometimes we don't. But um, uh, the floor is yours. Okay. First and foremost, thank you for the invitation to come and share our current state of our interpreter services uh, division as well as paint a picture for you as far as what our roadmap looks like to support um, equity and inclusivity um, within the organization. And so Helen is on her third week um, as the director of interpreter services. And so this was a crash course in orientation. And so I'm going to allow her to speak to the first few slides um, because it really depicts the current state. And I want to say a special thank you to Dr. Levin um, and uh, Sandra Lee, who also contributed to this presentation. So we could not have done it without them as well. Everyone. Can you hear me? Yes. Mm -hmm. Thank All right. 
So um, I think of the slides that are demographics, and we're really looking at the demographics with the bent towards language and culture. What I wanted to point out with this slide that you've seen is the comparison between California and Alameda County. And what was most striking to me was the differences in the staff and the patient population of AHS. Um, what we're seeing here, according to race, is that we are mostly seeing Hispanic or Latino patients, and our staff is comprised of 13.7% of the same race. Compare that to um, African American, which were pretty evenly matched at 27 and 27.9%. Then contrast that with uh, Asian patients, who are 12%, and our staff is mostly Asian, 29.4%. So how does this play out in our day-to-day -day operations? Um, we have a fabulous program called the Qualified Bilingual Staff Program, the QBS program. You guys have heard about that? So it's a way to train and test, assess some of our staff as to their bilingual skills. And what happens is that they are then able to provide train, um, interpretation, verbal interpretation services um, in the course of their regular duties. What's remarkable about that is that of the 163 qualified bilingual staff, 75% of them are in Spanish. So it seems to me that what that, that's telling you is that the staff are feeling that the need for Spanish and are stepping up and addressing that. So that to me is a very positive sign. I have control. So this one, um, when did she stick home? What I wanted to point out in this slide is, again, significant for Alameda County. We've got 41.3% uh, of our population uh, aged five and above who speak English less than very well. So all of this just points to the need for language services and cultural sensitivity, cultural competence. I'm going to move on to this slide. We have an in-house HS interpreter services team that Sandra has led for many years. And when we pulled information in 2018, these are the languages that um, we have been provided. The majority of it is in Spanish. And we provide our services in different ways. One is in person. That's the most popular one. Um, the biggest one is telephonic. We have some wins with the telephonic services in that in the last month, we migrated to a Cisco call manager program that now allows us to know the time each interpreter spends on what language. So to me, that's more eyes on the operation. So I'm looking forward to being able to see what's going on with that in terms of how our in-house interpreters are doing. Um, so we know that we get 700 calls per day for interpretation services, and 500 of those are addressed by AHS staff. Now note that that's Monday to Friday business hours, so the rest are addressed by um, our vendors. One other win I want to point out is the video medical interpretation. I'll keep going. Um, the video medical interpretation. And, um, we have the HS has been a leader in adapting that, and we have implemented it in several of our clinics where we have wireless um, surface pros, and we're able to preserve the visual cues that um, people like in person interpreting at the press of a button. We don't need to wait so much for an interpreter, and our interpreter can be at one place and eliminate the waste of walking or waiting. Um, so more on that that we're very excited about. 
Now, on the holiday hours, off hours, we have extremely vendor interpreter teams that we use. Um, we saw also that with them, there are a majority in Spanish interpretation. Um, they cover 304 languages. And they have 24-7 availability. They are currently only telephonic. We have an RFPR. We've got nine vendors who are vying for the business. And we're looking at, can they expand to VMI? Um, can they also expand to American Sign Language, which is currently only face-to-face? -face? Um, so there's a wait time there, 30 minutes if you really need them the same day, or pre-book them, pre-schedule them uh, for planned appointments. This slide is um, thanks to Dr. Laboon. Um, I would venture that every person in this room has had an opportunity or an experience or experiences with patients when their health care was adversely affected, possibly by language or cultural misunderstanding. So we have um, rich experience in that. What this slide shows is our why, why we want to do better. It's for our patients. And this is the slide that um, is going to segue into Silva's um, presentations on our strategies for addressing barriers and disparities. Thank you, Helen. Thank you for doing that great job in three weeks. Um, so um, I have been painting on a white canvas for a while now until Helen came on board who can help me uh, truly bring this picture to light with the rest of the team um, interpreter services. And so one of the areas where we really need to focus is making data-driven decisions. And currently, all of our data, a majority of our data, is very manual. So it has been very challenging to really um, assess where it, where it is that we need to truly take a deeper dive. Fortunately, EPIC is on the horizon, and so what we've been able to do is where we see our deficits, we are building within our future state in order to be able to ascertain whether or not our gut and what people tell us is truly the direction we should be going in. And so absence of data at this particular time, because it is very manual and labor intensive and we are looking at some of that currently, our, our main focus in the next uh, 30 days when we've already started doing this is reaching out to the voice of the customer. And the voice of the customer is all of you in this room, um, our providers. It's also the voice of the customer of our patients. And so currently we don't have a mechanism in place through, you know, Prescani and other satisfaction surveys to be able to capture this information from our patients. But what we do have is we have three leaders within the division that speak three different languages. So we're being able to speak Spanish. I am going to be calling patients who have been served to be able to get their voice. Um, Helen will be doing the same related to a Filipino population and so we'll assemble um, with our Canadian population. So there are little ways we're going to scare cat to be able to get to the information that we need. We also have been partnering and having conversation with San Francisco General Hospital. We've also been having conversations at the state level with other hospitals, also American Essential Hospital uh, colleagues, to talk about their language access programs to see what it is that they've done, what, what they've done what they've been able to um, uh, garner, um, because they are ahead of us, obviously, from an EHR perspective. The other 
third basic tenet we have is that we want to make sure that we have um, the right people that we're leveraging our human resources effectively. So um, we know um, that we have an interpreter services department that, that works eight to five, and we have a variety of uh, languages that we serve. We know we have a PBS population and a program that is uh, is very much um, happening in our ambulatory setting. But do we have these people scheduled at the right time to serve the patients? The right languages um, scheduled at the right time? Do we need, because after hours, we are calling um, our external partners for interpreter services for Spanish, do we need to change up those hours for Spanish speakers? And so those are some of the questions that we're asking at this juncture. Also, our interpreters need additional training. What I have learned um, talking to colleagues across the country is that interpreter service departments are, are really a, a good conduit for understanding social, social determinants of health. In the course of a conversation with a patient, patients, um, a provider may ask an interpreter to interpret something, and they do interpret that they get an answer. But there may be a whole lot of other stuff that the patient shares, but does the interpreter really understand that that's valuable or meaningful information to the provider, or do they read that out unknowingly? So that's another piece that we're going to focus on in the coming um, months. Also, um, related to uh, technology, um, we have done a lot of process mapping. Um, Helen didn't know that I was very much into the lean and lean design, and so she has been doing a lot of process mapping in the last three weeks that she's been here for us to really understand the gaps. So as we work with Epic, that we're able to close those gaps and not repeat those gaps in the future state. Um, as you know, uh, Dr. Perkett, uh, we did a lot of work in the GI area related to um, VMI, and so being able to do more of that across the system to increase remote access. And then, and then lastly, um, in my experience, the other areas uh, when we have harm events or events that are near misses, we really don't oftentimes look at language as a potential contributing factor. And so in my previous life outside of this organization, we did a lot of work around this space, and so we would be working with our quality team to see how do we embed some questions within the investigation to really get out whether or not um, English is a second language or, or uh, language uh, barriers or cultural sensitivity issues may have contributed to the, uh, to the event. And then we have a lot of other pie-in-the-sky things that we would like to touch on once we fix all of these things, which is signage, um, culturally sensitive, you know, food, education materials, you name it, we want to be able to expand and support in other ways. So we'll open it up to questions um, uh, to all of you. Trustee Jensen. Um, Thank you for your report. Thank you for your report. That was very, um, very useful. I, my first question was regarding the, um, the initial access to language, um, to translation when someone enters the system by phone. Is there a... Um, is it automated, like press one for press two for? Yes, I'm looking at Sambo here. She's our super user and content expert. But yes, there is, um, we've mapped pathways when an AHS staff or person will go call a member and it will route to an um, on-site dispatcher, office hours, and if not, it will go to the um, outside vendor. It's in with the patient. And then we have access to um, a variety of languages, not just Spanish at that point. 304 languages. Great. 
my second question was the last thing that was um, discussed was the adverse um, events. And um, I, I just, I don't know, I guess I have a question, but um, I do, I am aware that um, adverse events, especially oral medication compliance and things like that, are, are very related to language and, and misunderstanding. So um, I just wonder if you would comment on that and how, how that happens at the, either the bedside or the discharge or the um, time of, of um, patient care. Um, you're right. The, the literature says that there's 98,000 um, deaths related to medication error, and, and I'm wondering if Dr. Lubin would want to comment on what it's like at the bedside um, when that's happening, medication errors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> come, come forward. Come to the mic. It's Dr. Michelle <laughs> She's a chief medicine resident in the Department of Medicine. Okay. this work uh, because one day I was in my clinic and one of my patients who spoke Spanish had her written information of all of her clinic appointments in English and thought that she was coming for her sleep study. Um, so she had no idea because she spoke Spanish and was given a list of things in English and that doesn't help her. Um, so yeah, another part of this is that, uh, you know, as physicians and all the staff that we work with the patients, we always want to give them the best care and use the resources that we have. But a lot of times, you know, the translator phones in patients' rooms go missing, and now we have to find the phone. Um, and so I think that those uh, challenges lead to not great care for our patients and that we sometimes cut corners because we have to go see 14 other patients that morning. Um, and so we really want to find a way to make it that you know, none of those barriers are there and the patients always get the care that they deserve. Thank you, Dr. Thank you, Dr. Thank you. So, you know, my, my, just my closing comment would be just having at the discharge, at the time of the discharge, when the, the meds have been given or the or the, or the, the, the waste or whatever, the, the discharge orders, you know, having that not only in the language, but, but the, 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 the orders and the, the, the clarification being spoken and written as well. I think that's really important. I appreciate all the work that you Trustee uh, Hernandez, then Dr. Jack. Uh, just a quick question. Will in EPIC, will we be able to indicate a patient's language preference so that that's standard now across all the experience with that patient? There's some really exciting things happening. The answer is yes. I'm so excited. There's also work being done in the after-visit summary that has the discharge instructions. Um, we're confirming how many languages are actually going to be printed out. Um, but yeah, yeah. Terrific. Thank Dr. Jack. Uh, just, I, I want to share with you, because I take care of patients here. Uh, sometimes, yes, uh, it is frustrating to get the translator, especially if it's busy, but we don't know that. But there was a day here that I went home, and I recorded that day on the Thursday, about probably less than a year ago, where I saw five patients. One of them spoke English. They spoke five different languages. There's Punjabi, Vietnamese, Cantonese, um, Spanish, and Mongolese. Five patients with five different languages with lung diseases that I saw in one clinic day. It's really unprecedented. And so I'm really very, very proud of our team here, and I'm very proud of our mission here to take care and deliver care 
for patients coming from different parts of the world. It, it really gives me a, a great sense of meaning and, and purpose. Thank you for your report. I end standard for everyone who presents. You guys did a great job. Can you rank list for this committee your top concerns? Um, Paula visited Willamette for me. You had epic, epic, epic. I have data, data, data. Okay. <laughs> so, so that meaning that you don't you don't have the data that you need, or yes, I, I, at this point I feel like I either don't have the data in my hands, I have, or I haven't asked the right people. Um, I'm curious about how are we doing, and that's where the benchmarking is going to play in. Um, what is our future? I'm aware that the NCQA wants us to integrate measures of health literacy, language access, um, cultural competence as part of our performance assessment as an organization. We were talking earlier about as part of our performance assessment as leaders. Is that where we're going? How are we going to get there? Um, when we hear complaints, are we addressing them appropriately? If I'm getting, if we're getting 21,000 calls a month, what's an acceptable number of complaints? If I'm getting 10 a month, is that okay, not okay? Are these complaints based on quality, patient safety, preference for a new person, provider, education, technological difficulties? I just don't have eyes on that information, so that's why it's data, data, data. Got it. Um, I'll, I'll end with a few comments. One, uh, I'm sorry, please, Dr. So, Jesse Banerjee. So we, uh, I, I, when you hear the word cultural, cultural competence, I kind of think of it as a discrete thing that you feel like you can achieve at some point in time, like if you take an exam, you can do it. So uh, um, Jimmy Booker, Dr. Melanie Jovalon, and Janne Garcia, they have used the word for uh, you know, medical education called cultural humility, and there's a lot of really good thing about, but there's a whole theory and, uh, you know, things that go with that about, you know, what, what it is. So just amazing of why it's so important to be constantly thinking about uh, language and our language and our positionality when we do that, that constant learning thing as well. So uh, we, I'd be happy at any point in time if you do wanted to have a speaker uh, on that. Thank you. Trustee Hernandez. Yeah, just uh, highlight for some who don't speak another language. I think what they're doing is amazing. Um, there is a pretty significant case study about one word that was misunderstood by an attending physician who did speak Spanish, but uh, that person was treating someone who was Cuban, not Mexican. And the one word that uh, unfortunately created a terrible outcome was intoxicado. So in Spanish, Mexicanos, Mexicans might say intoxicado if you've had too much to drink. But in Cuba, that word is used for being dizzy. And this young man actually died of a brain aneurysm because the interpretation was off. Uh, and, and again, you know, uh, there are so many variations in any culture. But if we're seeing a lot of Spanish speakers, we have to be very careful that we don't assume it's all, you know, one particular group. Hispanics come from 26 different countries. Most of the time, the Spanish we use can be understood across those different cultures. But that's a really good example of the critical nature of the work that they do and how important cultural competency 
you know, is to this particular endeavor. So thank you so much for all the work you do to make sure everybody knows how hard it is to do. Yeah. And then uh, Trustee Hernandez, that you mentioned that, because even within our own staff, we have so many people that speak Spanish, and it's amazing when we all get in a room and we start speaking, we start critiquing each other, and what we've learned through that process is that we all are coming from different cultures. We were all raised differently, and so it has really been eye-opening to have people's perception be that that's a disrespectful way to approach an individual versus no, that's the, the right way, right? So it's gone from one extreme to the other. So I appreciate you saying that because it, 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 it allows us to really learn about each other in the different cultures. Thank you. I'll, I'll end with the, this last comment. I am a regular and frequent user of the translation And I will say this about our in-house services. They are an outstanding group of translators. My problem list, number one, is that there's only 31 of them. And, and uh, getting hold of them during bottlenecks is it's very, very challenging. And I'll say my experience with our outside translation services, I'll just say, is not the same as inpatient services. Uh, so um, my applause to the translation services. I'm glad you guys have uh, got to present to us because it's really important work to do. So thank you very much. With, with that, we will close out uh, item F. Um, I'm going to have to make a couple of jumps because we're at 12 minutes to go. Item G is the Patient Safety and Regulatory Affairs. That is a written report. And barring any other comments, I will, I will leave that one for our digestion and to discuss at another time uh, with a couple of comments to uh, Dr. Hussein uh, uh, and, uh, and Darshan. Very, very nicely written as before. A couple of questions. Uh, I'll re-request that we keep RCAs as a running list so we can contextualize by calendar year. That would be great because there was just one for today, and I think we already have nine from before. And, and the next one is, which I'd like to talk about next time, is could we put a key in at the bottom of the safety alerts? Because we, we keep referring to E and above, but there's actually an E, F, G, H, I. And if you look in our current report, we have some I's, we have some J's, which are, which are interesting. So uh, if we can put that in, uh, Dr. Hussein, that would be great just as a key to help contextualize this stuff. Is that acceptable? Absolutely. Okay. So uh, barring any other discussion uh, for item G, I'll close item G. And I just, I just want to celebrate one thing, oh, no, uh, because we often don't do that, um, which is that with the beta score safety culture survey, that we had nearly 70% participation, 1,300 members of Highland putting us 80%, 93% at Alameda, every behavioral health, post-acute care, San Leandro, all over 60%. And this is credit, I just want to make this statement, the conversation we just had about interpreter services reminded me both of the, the unique challenges we have, but also the richness in the work we do. I believe that the participation in our safety culture survey is a recognition that yes, we have challenges, but there's great joy if we bring them to the forefront and address them. And I just want to say that that's what I believe that survey reflects. A recognition that by voicing them, something will happen. So I just want to take a moment to celebrate the people who have the courage to participate. Thank you, Dr. Singh. 
with that, we'll close item G, and hopefully we'll find a little bit more space to talk about that at the next time. Well, uh, the next two items are item H and item I. Item H is the TNM forecast. I'll remind this, this body that we need to vote around June. Um, also, actually, I'll say June so we can start July. Last year we actually voted in July. We a little bit late. Item I is our TNM dashboard review, which was allocated for five minutes. I'm going to close out the TNM dashboard review for so we can actually give Dr. Hussein, you know, about eight or nine minutes to introduce us to TNM forecasting. I'll remind this committee again that, that we've carved out a little more time tomorrow, maybe about 20 minutes more to talk about this tomorrow, and then um, uh, next month, May, will probably be our most robust discussion because we need to be able to vote in June. So, uh, Dr. Hussein, can we got about eight minutes? Is that okay? Yeah, sure. So, and uh, this begins on page uh, one three six of the packet. So, I um, believe that there was a lot of thought that went into the development of the metrics last year. Um, so, I just take a moment to reflect some of the principles that guided us in the selection of the metrics. Um, so, those are at the top of page uh, one thirty seven, I believe. Yes, sir. Um, one of the Obviously, one of the things we want to reflect in the true north metric is that the metric reflects our operational priorities. The second is that uh, we want to select metrics that are not so narrow that they don't give us a representation of the global services around um, Alameda Health System. Third is something that I think is really important, and we had some um, significant dialogue about this last year, um, but I think has served us very well this year, which is to, straight, to not veer away from metrics that are national best practice, that have benchmarking, that have standard definitions. When we create and tailor our own metrics, they're very prone to measurement error. We can't hold ourselves accountable because we can't benchmark. There's no clear best practice around them. Um, the fourth is that as we try to elevate and acknowledge the great work that's happening in our system uh, publicly, we should draw attention on our True North metric dashboard to those metrics that CMS and public reporting agencies use to evaluate us, so to create alignment there. Um, and the final thing is, as we move into uh, SAFIRE, um, the quality team has had a lot of discussions with the SAFIRE team around where can we build operational dashboards, so providing uh, data to providers and staff on a daily basis, um, process measures that will actually help them understand how they can make improvements in the outcomes for tracking the True North metric. The reason I believe this is really important is for people to feel that they can have control and a role in changing what we're tracking on the True North metric dashboard. We need to begin to develop these dashboards and sapphires so they can see that daily. Um, so moving forward, looking at the metrics that we currently have, page 145 of the document. Um, in access, um, I think that there might be an opportunity in ambulatory to think about whether or not we should change the selection of those metrics to represent uh, the operational priorities for the coming fiscal year. Um, with uh, um, the observed to expected length of stay, uh, right now we're, we have that for the system. We have an, uh, we are actually, this was reported out in the True North metric report, but we're beginning to see progress there. Um, and it might be nice to continue tracking that. 
Um, for the EB throughput, uh, currently uh, we're reflecting Highland. There will be opportunities potentially as we move into Sapphire to track that time uh, at San Leandro and Alameda as well. Uh, for our quality metrics, Prime and QIP will continue to exist during the next fiscal year and will be an important source of supplemental funding, so it probably makes sense to continue those. Um, for the hospital acquire, uh, sorry, for the acute 30-day readmission, um, we can think about whether or not that remains an important measure. Um, uh, certainly it's an important measure, uh, but whether or not uh, that reflects uh, the totality of what we want to capture. For hospital-acquired infections, we're currently looking at catheter associated urinary tract infections, central line uh, infections, bloodstream infections. We may be able to add on additional um, hospital-acquired infections like C. diff and surgical site infections, so we have an opportunity to expand that. For the hospital-acquired harms, we're looking at PSIs, but there might be opportunities to expand that. But when I looked at best practice and dashboards across the U.S., we are reflecting some of the key metrics that are uh, seen at other organizations. I feel really good about them. Um, for experience, we have Rate the Hospital, um, which uh, is a, is a uh, overarching uh, metric. Uh, throughout the course of this year, we have been a lot of operational dashboards that look at key drivers in those areas um, that I think will continue to remain important. The care transition measure is actually sort of double reflected because it is one of the prime metrics. So the question is whether or not we should just include it in prime or we want it reflected again here. Um, in the ambulatory side, we have CG caps. We're also beginning to do a lot of work on behavioral health. Um, I will tell you in terms of the behavioral health patient experience, um, it is not a uh, required reporting metric. We voluntarily do that. So uh, that's just something to consider as to whether or not we want to switch it out for something else or, or, um, um, or keep it, but just wanted to put that on your radar. So I think we, with the metrics we have, we have an opportunity to expand some of them and access. We could switch out a couple of them, um, but I think we are, on the right path. Excellent. Trustees? Um, I wanted to, would you, were there any, it, it, like, with regard to the hospital acquired infections, would, would you recommend any alternatives? And especially with the, the age caps, it's been, um, there's been some, some discussion, um, not here so much, but that um, age caps is measuring, um, may not be measuring the things that it may be discretionary. It may not be measuring actual things that are um, being provided. And, and it's too discretionary in some ways. So are there things in experience that could better measure what the actual experience is? So, yeah, no, these are great questions. Um, what I would say is that the Measuring the care that we deliver is complex. There are multiple professional societies and um, organizations whose sole mission is around performance measurement. I fear us trying to stray too far away from best practice and trying to recreate that because um, as much as 
I love my quality department. I am not sure that they would be able to excel uh, uh, or provide an alternative that's even superior to these national organizations. I think what we need to reflect on, though, is how we use these measures to guide our work. So not so much fixate. So we should have a robust discussion about what our target should be and how we're using the data to guide our work. You mentioned earlier, and we didn't talk about this, and maybe we'll talk about it in the future, but you you did the survey on um, safety. And that's the kind of thing that in in a few years, as you see those trends and as you see the organization becoming safer, that is the kind of thing that I think we should be measuring. This is a really good point. There are many things that I wish we could put on the dashboard. The challenge is to be able to give you monthly updates that has to also be a measure that we can try by. And and, and it can't lag more than two months. So these are all the additional considerations, which I wish there were, there's a lot of other things that I'd love to be able to present, but we're somewhat challenged by just the mechanics of the measure. So to close out and give us a roadmap on this section, because we're coming to time, um, this is a, a springboard. We've sort of been prepping ourselves for this discussion. Tomorrow we'll have another small 15, 20 minute discussion on this. Next month, May, will probably be the biggest carve-out for this discussion. In parallel to this work, the ELT is going to be seeing what we're capable of, how this fits with our strategic vision, and uh, Becky and I have spoken about that. So my ask is give, uh, uh, in concert with the ELT, give best proposal to working metrics at the next MEC, at the next QPSC, and then we'll be poised to make some kind of vote in June. Does that sound appropriate? So with that, we'll close out this section because we're kind of running on time. I promised Dr. J. Dr. J actually has a, a, a close follow-up. Dr. J, can you give it in about 30 seconds? Uh, I, I would like to ask uh, Mr. Mark Amy, just as it relates to the issue, just to keep it on the record, I, I got disturbed here in San Diego, a second citizen in the, in the installed or in the, so I want, uh, I want you just to tell us about the training. This is a follow-up to a prior discussion made uh, in, in uh, earlier in the meeting about concern about having enough spacing, consideration, the cultural implications, and the equipment for launching Epic at San Leandro Hospital. Yeah. So, uh, thanks. I uh, appreciate the chance to address this. I'm sorry I wasn't. Okay. Thank you. Sorry I wasn't in the room at the uh, time that this uh, was uh, talked about, because uh, I probably could have added some clarity. So, we are actually going to be doing training at San Leandro Hospital. We have two classrooms uh, that we're going to be using for the training. Um, in addition to that, we're also going to have a command center at uh, San Leandro Hospital. So uh, we'll, we'll have several remote command centers. One of them is going to be at San Leandro Hospital. We'll also have another one at Alameda Hospital uh, for this. As far as device uh, placement, I actually personally walked through there with Lori, and uh, we uh, have uh, blueprints, and we've been dotting uh, the blueprints uh, with devices and working with the clinicians in those areas. We are space-constrained. I think there's no secret on that. We've actually been working with our facilities team to do some additional build-out and some reconfiguration of some of the rooms, and so we're holding on some of our equipment uh, to put it in place until those rooms go uh, in. Some of the equipment's also just not scheduled to go in yet, so you probably haven't seen any of the uh, work around the new equipment, although we've been doing refresh of existing equipment in those areas. And in all of our hospitals, uh, there's uh, frankly no difference about the location. We have specific um, uh, numbers of devices that we put in depending on the number of clinicians that we have, and we uh, stated those ratios, and it doesn't matter if it's high level or Alameda or San Leandro or our SNFs or other locations like that. We follow very specific uh, standards on how we uh, put those devices in. And then obviously we have flexibility around where those devices go depending on workflow. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you. Thank you for that update from our CIO. Uh, I guess my request for our CIO is to maybe just a little uh, increase the communication with the med staff because it sounds like there was a little bit of disconnect on this kind of item. So maybe that's a five-minute conversation with them. If that okay, Dr. McConty, is that acceptable to you? Yes. Okay. Uh, with that, uh, thank you, everyone. We will go to item J, uh, the planning calendar and issue tracking. Uh, next month, uh, we had a patient affairs landscape uh, set forth uh, to have a discussion uh, in follow-up to a prior one about perhaps the role of a patient affairs representative on, on, on this board. I'm going to humbly request that we kind of defer that discussion because we probably need to expand a little bit of time to make uh, for, for our TNM discussion. So uh, is that acceptable to us? So, Dr. J, maybe we'll put that in the next fiscal. We'll lump that down in two months, and that way we can expand a little bit of space because we have two SBU reports on calendar for next month. We'll probably give maybe 20, 25 minutes to this TNM forecast if that's acceptable to you, Dr. Hussain. Um, with that, uh, we will close out item J, item K, legal counsel. Yes, the committee met in closed session considered the credential and privilege reports from each of the medical staffs and approved those candidates for privileges and credentials who met the requirements of each of the medical staffs took no other action. Thank you very much. Plus three minutes. My apologies. That closes the QPSC. Thank you.